Lord, we come to your word tonight and we come to you. And we recognize that only in you is there hope. Only in you is there life. But in you is both life and hope, light and help, and so much fruitfulness for which we give thanks. As we come to your word, we pray that the fruitfulness of your word would be communicated to us, to our spirits. We ask, Lord, that more than just reading these scriptures, we would allow you to read our lives, to read our hearts, to read our souls, and to speak into us your words of life that will build us up on our most holy faith and send us forth connected with you and one another in the great harvest that you are bringing out. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. As soon as you looked at her face, you could see that she was well advanced in years. Oh, it was a sweet face, warm, grandmotherly, pretty, I would say. You could see in her thin face the fine structure of her bones still, but they had been draped as if in crepe in the soft folds of that wrinkled skin like a, like a silk sheet on a bed recently slept in. And it's true that you could hear in her voice the sound of dentures and the curls that crowned her head, lovely as they were, were likely from a store. But there was a twinkle in her, in her eyes and a vibrancy in her voice that was unmistakably vivid and vital, even though at the time of the interview, she was 98 years old. As a matter of fact, she was about five years older than my own great-grandmother, and I saw a certain similarity between the two of them, although I must say this woman that was being interviewed that I'm about to describe further to you had more vitality at that age than I can say that my great-grandmother did because by the time I remember her, which was the same time as this interview was made, which is itself already two generations ago in the late 70s, my great-grandmother didn't have the kind of sharp wit or ability to hear or ability to speak very much that this woman older than her did. She was born, the woman being interviewed, in 1881. I saw the interview on YouTube, and I must say I'm a sucker for this kind of thing, because I absolutely am fascinated by the experience of people who lived in eras earlier than ours. And it is really rather astonishing to think that you can listen to this woman describing her life in the late 19th century here where we are now in the early 21st century. I wonder what future generations will think about the descriptions we make of our times today. Of course, all of us are probably quite focused on the hardships that we are facing in the world today. And that's why I begin by talking about this interview because this interview with the woman that was made in 1979 when she was 98 years old, describing the changes in her life, was actually about trying to understand what somebody from that era made of the modern world. But now that we are more than 40 years on from when that interview was made, none of us thinks of 1979 as the modern world anymore. But those of us who lived through it can remember that at the time it was cutting edge. And there were many thoughts about how stressful and demanding and difficult life was, but also how wonderful and glorious all of our new technologies were. In other words, not really very different from today. 
I must say that this woman that was being interviewed had a very open mind, and I appreciated her attitude, because sometimes when we age, as we age, we can get, you know, crotchetier and grumpier and less um, impressed with the world around us. But she had a kind of wonderment about where the world was at when she was. She was very impressed with all the new technologies and appreciated that life was really much easier than it had been when she was young. And that's what I want to talk about. Because she came of age when there were no cars, there was no telephone. She saw the advent of the telephone. She talked about how when the phone would ring, everybody on the street would come to hear the conversation because there was likely only one phone in town at the time when it first arrived in, into her Pennsylvania town that she lived in. And everybody would be listening to the miracle of this conversation. I enjoy watching an old film from the 40s called Meet Me in St. Louis. And it's set around this era, although a little bit later, early 20th century. And everyone is quite amazed by this contraption, this invention of a telephone. Well, we're still enthralled with phones, aren't we? I don't know if you've gotten your latest iPhone yet or whatever. I don't mean to spark any wars. You may be impressed with another brand. That's all well and good. Just remember this, 40 years on from now, people will think it's all very quaint what you were impressed with today. This woman saw many things develop that made life easier. After all, she couldn't go to the store and buy butter. She churned it herself. She lived in that era where people had chickens in order to have eggs. And if you didn't have a chicken, you didn't have an egg. You had to go find somebody with the chicken and barter for the egg. She talked about, of course, the hard winters that they would have, but also how those winters were a blessing because actually they could get around faster with a sled on the snow than they could on foot or with a rickety kind of cart that they would have to take during other times of the year. All of these things to say she appreciated that the modern world was faster and easier that you could go farther, faster, and communicate with more people. But she said something in this very positive way that really struck me, and it becomes the center of my focus on her as we begin our time together tonight. She said, we didn't have all of those things that people have today, and I think they're wonderful. But I don't think people are happier today. I think we were very happy then. I suppose it's easy to look back with rose-colored glasses on days of past. Most of us look back on our youth probably with more fondness than we actually felt in, when we were living through the time. Time has a way of softening the rough edges of what we went through. All the things that we didn't know and were uncertain about and we were worried about, those have all been resolved one way or another. They may have gone well or they may have gone bad, but one thing is we don't stay up night worrying about them now. Or if we do, it's not about what will happen, but it may be about what did happen. In any case, it's easy to look back fondly, and I recognize that's not always the reality. So there were no doubt then, as there are now, as there always have been, people who were sad, people who were stressed, situations that were desperate, circumstances that were unjust and unfair. There were problems then, as there are problems now. And many of the problems that were then, we might look at and say they seem worse. But what she says in the midst of that is, we had joy. We had happiness. She made a comment to the effect that I don't think we expected as much because we didn't have as much and we didn't have reason to expect as much. She said, I think family was more important then. 
That seems to be something you hear from generation to generation, isn't it? That family is more important in times past. And even if you and I cling to our family and consider them very important today, we can probably recognize that the world around us seems to have lost some of the appreciation, at least here in the United States, of the blessing of family, the simple blessing of being together. Maybe COVID and everything else we've dealt with in this year, maybe it's made that recognition a little sharper for us. If so, that's something to give thanks for. Because these present situations, they will come to pass. There will be a new day. And I hope that when those days arrive, you and I remember how much we have to be thankful for. Just by being able to gather in a restaurant or in someone's home. Just how wonderful it is to be able to spend time face to face with somebody. Just the wonder and glory of giving a hug. Tonight's message centers on a reality that comes in contradiction to our normal thinking. And there's three things that I'll say right off the bat that I want to sort of underline for us. One is, we tend to think of our happiness as being based on our circumstances. And the reason I mentioned this woman is that she saw a tremendous change of circumstances, as great as any of us have seen in our lifetime, I'm sure, even though most of us, if we've lived long enough, can say we've seen a lot of change. And you don't even have to have lived that long. You could be 25 years old and say, I've seen a lot of change in my life, and you have. Circumstances are constantly changing. And if you and I base our satisfaction in life and our sense of purpose on what we have and what we are able to do according to the circumstances around us, we will find ourselves stressed and distressed. We will find ourselves grieving and angry, agitated and full of angst. And even if we lift up prayer and worship in the midst of that, if we are rooted in our circumstances and letting our feelings and emotions lead us, we are unlikely to really experience the fullness of joy and the fullness of harvest that the Lord has for us. Our lives as followers of Jesus, as people who give thanks to God simply for who he is, are not situated on our circumstances our joy does not depend on our circumstances. Our joy depends on our Savior. Will you say that? My joy doesn't depend on my circumstances. My joy depends on my Savior. It is because of Jesus Christ that you and I have joy. Jesus fills our thanksgiving, any thanksgiving, every thanksgiving with joy. Even if you're alone and isolated today, and I'm sorry if that is your circumstance, I want you to know it's not your situation in the Savior. You are not alone. Jesus is there with you. His Holy Spirit is in you. Tonight, we are going to partake of communion together. And even though you be afar off, you are connected in Christ. We are together in Him. He is alive in us. That is the basis of of our faith, the security of our life, the purpose of our being. Now, the irony of, of the second thing is that it actually reverses the first because once you realize 
that we are not dependent on our circumstances or our feelings in order to experience joy and fruitfulness, that rather it's because we are rooted in Christ, abiding in him, then what you realize is that in him, our circumstances couldn't be better. Because actually in Christ, we have an eternal situation. We have an eternal kingdom that we are living in and that is living in us now. And we have an eternal hope that leads us forward in faith and we don't do it alone. The third thing is we do that together. He did not save us alone. He came to us, he brought us into him and in him he has connected us together. Our situations do not define our joy, Jesus does. But in Jesus, our situation is secure and we rise up to the promise of what he has in store for us together. Say that, we rise together. That's really the microcosm of both Sunday's message and today. So you'll remember, if you were with us on Sunday, and if you weren't, it's okay, because I'm going to do some review with you, but you'll remember that we looked at Psalm 126, a psalm of ascents, rising up to the mountain of God for the harvest festival feast in the fall. They would sing a set of psalms as they walked up the hill. I want to look back tonight at what we talked about just in brief on Sunday and then move forward with it just like we move up the hill. On Sunday, I talked about how as a kid, I used to have to go up a series of hills to get to my home. And I mentioned how you and I can relate to that feeling right now. As though every time we crest one problem, we seem to be at the base of another problem. But that's just the circumstances. The situation within us is that we are not alone and we have the energy to go ahead because we have a future promised hope that we are looking towards. We have a present Holy Spirit that we are equipped by and we have people on our right and our left. Brothers and sisters, who give us together strength as iron sharpens iron, hand in hand, arm in arm, we rise together as we look back at what God has done and go forward into what he has for us. The in-gathering is what we looked at on Sunday, and I want to just give a groundwork for any who might not have been with us or a refresher to those who were but could use a refresher. I know I always can about what the songs of ascents were about. As I mentioned, there are these 14 psalms, 15, excuse me, in the book of Psalms, the Old Testament hymn book of, the, of ancient Israel that were specifically set aside as songs to be sung together as a family, as a family group traveling together, as pilgrims traveling towards ancient Jerusalem, which was a city then as now built on a hill, which meant that when you were walking or if you had carts that you had to lead, you were going uphill. It was a slug. It was a long walk, especially if you'd come from far away, if you'd come from the northern area of the country or from the hillside surrounding and you'd traveled from the coastline. You had already walked many, many miles and then you had to walk uphill. Singing, worshiping, kept their focus on where they were going, one step at a time. That's why they're called songs of steps. Degree by degree, principle and principle, precept upon precept. That's why they're called songs of degrees. Pilgrim songs, because pilgrims are people who progress towards a spiritual goal. Of course, Thanksgiving is a pilgrim time. Those also were people who had a sense that God was calling them to a place of freedom and fruitfulness. So also the ancient Israelites 
looked to the Lord for their freedom and their fruitfulness. And they recognized that it's going to be step by step. These are gradual psalms. There were three times a year when they would make that trek to Jerusalem. In the spring for Passover, in the mid-year for Pentecost, and then in the fall. These songs were probably sung at all those times, but the uh, the time that they are generally most associated with is the harvest festival, the fall festival. And even as those three times of the year related to the seasonal activity of what God is presently doing. He's bringing forth a harvest in the spring early. He's bringing forth a harvest in the summer, the early grain harvest. And he's bringing the conclusion of harvest times in the fall. So also these songs look back at what God has done, look at the present moment for what he is doing and apply that reality, that faith, and then look forward prophetically to what God will do. The past, the present, and the future are all wrapped up in the Psalms of Ascent. They talk about harvest from all of those perspectives. The harvest of God's prior help. The harvest of God's present provision. The harvest of God's promised prophetic hope that is yet to come. Let's read Psalm 126 together. I know we looked at it on Sunday, but it's worth repeating again. Just as they, every year, and maybe three times a year, would sing it out. Let's speak it out. In fact, I would encourage you to read it out loud with me. Will you read it right where you are? Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. If you've got people there in the house, get, get them all reading together. Let's read it together. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. We talked about on Sunday how there's the look back in the first three verses, or at least the first half of that third verse, about how God has delivered Israel out of captivity in the past, probably specifically looking at how Israel was delivered out of slavery in Egypt and brought through the parting of the Red Sea and into the wilderness and finally into the promised land. And they're saying, God delivered us in a way that no one could have expected. We felt like it was the end of a nightmare and it was so good. It was like a dream too good to be true, but it was real. And we said, God is good to us. And the, the nations around us said, God is good to them, right? The Egyptians said that, the Canaanites said that. And they say now, these Israelites who are in the midst of a present problem, they have a crisis of their own culture going on. They say, nevertheless, we are glad right here and now today because God is good for what he has done, for who he is. And now we're asking you, Lord, to hold fast to your word of promise for the future. When they say restore our captivity, we talked about how there's an idiosyncrasy of the Hebrew there, that the word for captivity also can be used colloquially as, as a phrase or a saying, meaning turn our fortunes around. It sounds like the opposite of captivity. It's a curious thing. But somehow in their language, captivity had come to be associated with a bad situation being turned around. You know, debt becoming treasure. Imprisonment becoming freedom. Sickness becoming health. Maybe it's because they were indebted, enslaved, and diseased in Egypt. 
diseased in the sense that their health wasn't strong and wasn't good, that they were um, you know, beaten and made to labor in, in arenas of work where people didn't live long and would die early because of the, the conditions. In other words, every bad thing that you can think of, of the circumstances of life, were their circumstances in captivity in Egypt, but captivity had come to be a, a, a category that they recognized as God ends that when you put your trust in God. God breaks those chains and delivers you out and turns your fortune around. Maybe that, I don't know, but I'm just saying maybe that is why the word came to mean restore us to freedom. Maybe also, as I mentioned on Sunday, it has to do with this idea that they recognized because the Lord made it clear that when you are liberated from one thing by the Lord, the law of sin and death, for instance, you aren't just set free to roam wild with no instruction about how to live, with no idea about where to go, just abandoned. No, you are adopted. Adopted into a new law of grace and glory that's written on your heart, that's born out in your spirit. You move from someone who was trapped by circumstances into someone who was saved by a savior and who puts their trust not in circumstances, but in that embrace of the Lord. Restore our captivity to you, Lord. Captivate us with your will. Capture us in your love. Free us from our distress. They recognized that to really work the harvest means you're going to labor and toil, blood, sweat, and tears. But those who will labor in the harvest fields of the Lord, who go out weeping, but nevertheless worshiping in and through their weeping, will come home rejoicing bringing in the sheaves of the harvest. Now, finally, on Sunday, we looked at how in Genesis 37, that same word for sheaves was part of Joseph's dream in ancient times that his brothers would bow down to him because when he was taken into slavery in Egypt, God turned his fortune around and turned his captivity into an enthronement. And he became a model of Jesus Christ for us in the Old Testament. Because when his brothers, who when he first told them his dream that they were like sheaves of wheat that were bowing down to him, they said, come on, get real. In fact, that was part of why they sold him into slavery. They betrayed him because they said, who do you think you are to talk that way to us? And just like Jesus, who came to his own and his own did not receive him, so Joseph's own brothers sold him like Judas sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But God had a different design. The circumstances looked bad, but God intended it for good. And the role reversal, the reversal of fortune for Joseph is really just a prophetic promise of the role reversal, the reversal of fortune that you and I experience in Jesus Christ so that we, as brothers and sisters in the family of God, come and bow down before our king. In this case, not Joseph, but one known as the son of another Joseph, Jesus, the king of all kings. Psalm 126, I believe, prophetically looks forward to the joy we will have in Jesus as the Lord of the harvest brings past and present and future together and fulfills all things. So in all of this, we give thanks 
For the bundle of blessings from the past, we give thanks. In the midst of the present weeping, we will worship. Because we give thanks to God in all things. We count it all joy. Because what we recognize is that God will not allow anything to, uh, to transpire in our lives unless he has a purpose that can be fulfilled through it and he will work all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And you are called. You are called to come and bow down and worship him. And when you do and you raise up thanks, you experience the joy of thanksgiving, not just one day a year, but every day of every year. It's possible to live in that attitude. The God who brought us help before uses our faith to restore, to turn situations around. But even more than that, today, he promises more yet to come tomorrow. He promises an uprising together. And that's where I want to come to the concluding half of our message tonight. The uprising where you and I bear out the fruit of our faith. Because we have been brought together, gathered in as a body. PCF, if you're part of our fellowship, we have been gathered as PCF, not to huddle and hunker down here or even in your homes, but to go out and give out the good news and the good fruit and the good gifts of everything that God does through us because of his promise to us. That's why I'm so delighted by things like the Operation Christmas Child event that took place last Saturday. What a perfect example of an ingathering of God's people and of all those wonderful toys and all those wonderful gifts and goodies that Sister Baby and Brother Sonny and Pastor Rochelle and so many of you that were here working on that. You brought those things together and you packaged them, but for what? Not to keep here, but to send it out, to bear out the good news. That's the uprising we're talking about. Not a revolt of rebellion that is an angry um, attack against all those things that we think are wrong in the world. Because frankly, that's not the way that wrong is going to be made right. But instead, our uprising is one of consistent submission to the only one who was ever right in our world. The only really righteous one. And in that there is peace and strength together. That's the harvest. Past, present, and future coming together in the hope of heaven. We rise. We are able to walk through these times and not give up and not grow weary. Even though you'll feel like giving up and you will grow weary. At least if you're like me at all because I have felt like giving up and I grow weary. But you know what? When I remember what God has done and give thanks to him for what he has done, I feel my spirit rise within me. It's such a glory to know that simply remembering what he has done is a big part of enjoying the moment you're in. So we rise worshiping in our present time, no matter what our present circumstances. Every circumstance is a cause to worship. Do you have abundance? Are you live, you, maybe you're making lots of money off the stock market. Praise God. Rejoice. Maybe you're deeply in debt. Rejoice. You say, rejoice over debt? Well, what's more? Why would you rejoice over the stock market? Well, because I'd rather get than give. No, actually, it's better to give away than to receive. The Lord said, actually, everything about our world is really kind of backwards anyway. You and I will never really understand the goodness and glory of God until we start praising him in all of it. Paul, the apostle, said, I've learned the secret. Whether I am abased or abounding. In other words, 
Maybe the tide is high and I'm riding high on it. Maybe the tide's gone out. And you know what happens when the tide goes out. It stinks. The situation doesn't look so good. But Paul said, I'm not worried when the tide goes out. And I'm not, I'm not proud and vain when the tide is high. Because I've learned the secret of both, which is the point is God has me in that situation for a purpose. What is the purpose of the Lord in this? And therefore, I'm blessed when I'm abased, and I'm blessed when I'm abounding. There's no situation that I'm not blessed in. And there's no situation that will discourage me as long as I keep my eyes fixed on Jesus and worship him and read his word and receive it and believe it, but I can't do it alone. We rise together. Say it again. We rise together. In these days, maybe one of the hardest things that so many of us have experienced if we are people of faith is that it has been harder to come together as the body of Christ. Now, in many ways, there are, there are again, silver lining blessings. Like I said, here we are online tonight, reaching potentially far more people with this message and this service and this invitation to worship, partnered and connected together with maybe far more people potentially than we were last year. It feels better to be in this room full and overflowing. I like that feeling. But you know, our feelings and the situation is not what we are to live by. We're to live by the word of God and according to the vision of the spirit. And what I see in the spirit is there is an attack, an assault against the body of Christ that is trying to divide us, that is trying to keep us separated. But it cannot succeed. It can't. If you are genuinely a part of the body of Christ, what do I mean by that? What I mean is, it cannot succeed unless you let it. Don't forsake the assembling together of the saints. Be a part of the body. Whether you are streaming online or you're coming to the patio service or if you're part of another church, you just happen to be joining us as a guest tonight, that's fine. Then be a part of your church. Be a part of your, your cell group, your Bible study. Be a part of your neighborhood where there are other believers that you can connect with. Do it wisely, do it appropriately for the circumstances that you are in, but don't forsake doing it. Keep doing it. You say, well, I don't like to do the Zoom call or I don't like to go online. Or maybe you say, I don't want to be on the patio or I don't like to wear a mask. Well, we're not children, are we? Well, maybe some of us are. Actually, we're all children of the kingdom, but let's not be, oh, dare I say the word, let's not be brats, spoiled to think. It has to be the way I want it. It has to be the way I'm comfortable. No, this journey isn't about being comfortable. We're going up a mountain. It's hard, heavy work. Sometimes you feel like stopping, but what I'm saying to you, what we say to each other is keep on keeping on and do it together. Stay together. And there are ways to be together. And so many of you are doing it, and I'm so proud of you for it, and don't give up on it. I know. I feel it too sometimes. It is hard. It's easy to grow weary but don't grow weary in well-doing because you will reap a harvest of reward if you don't stop doing the good things that God has called you to do. And primary to that is being together. I want to briefly look at a passage in the New Testament epistles that marvelously parallels what we've been talking about from these Psalms of Ascent 
and specifically Psalm 126. 1 John chapter 2. I'm not going to look at the entire passage with you, but it's there, the reference on your screen. You can read the whole thing on your own if you get an opportunity to. The first thing that you'll see in this passage, not necessarily in the order that it's written, but in the order I'm giving it to you because I want to highlight the consistency of what's being said, is that there is once again this recognition that we are able to rise up in faith when we remember what God has done. Remember together and give thanks. John wrote to the early church and said this, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Will you say that word, abide? You'll notice it's three times in the passage. You'll notice that in the works of John, um, for instance, in the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel in John chapter 15, when he is quoting Jesus, he quotes him with the same Greek term, abide in me and I in you. If you have what you heard from the beginning abiding in you, then the Son and the Father are abiding in you too. In other words, God is abiding in you the God that we only know because Jesus has made him known and he lives within us. If the word of God is dwelling in us richly, if we've hidden his word like a seed in our heart, it's going to blossom into fruition there. So remember what he's done. I was talking with one of the brothers just yesterday, brother here from PCF, and he was sharing about a present situation that he was asking for prayer for, just something that the, uh, you know, he wants the will of the Lord in his life. And he, he's asking for God's grace to know it and to pursue it and for it to be achieved. Amen, brother. But there's certain challenges with it, and that's almost always the case, right? We all have things that we're looking for help with or things that we are praying for God to bring about, and there's certain fears or challenges that we face in that. But he was, like the faithful man that he is, talking about how God had helped him with certain situations in the past. And so because of that, he knew that God was going to guide him and help him with this too. And as he shared that, it, it lifted my spirit for me because I'm dealing with stuff right now in my life, in, 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 in my circumstances, where I'm asking and interceding for help from God. And I trust God's goodness. I believe it. But I also can grow worried can grow anxious, just like you. And when this brother was reminding me of how God has been good to him, two things came into my mind. One was just the principle of that is so right that it made me feel good. And the second was God's been good to me too. I've seen how God has helped him and I've seen how God has helped me. How has God helped you? Remember it right now. I want to share a few things that come to my mind about me. But Pastor Henji asked us earlier to say things we are grateful for. I want you to scour your mind and your memory for how God has helped you in the past. And let that be strength to you today. You know, when I was a little boy, seven years old, in fact, it was in 1979. I just thought of that now, ironically enough. I fell on a palm frond. I've shared this story before. I don't have time tonight to go into greater detail. But it actually went into my artery. I didn't realize it at the time, but it did. It could have killed me. I could have bled to death right there and then in our backyard. It could have become infected. I could have gone into septic shock. They didn't know what it was. I went into my small town local medical clinic and they were, they were intending to do a biopsy. If they did, I probably would have bled out right there in that facility because of the nature of that unusual wound of a thorn in my flesh, in my artery. God saved my life. I didn't really realize it at the time. Not only, I mean, I could have lost my arm, I could have lost use of my arm. 
Instead, I have, I have this weakness. I can't, maybe you notice it sometimes. I can't close the fingers on that hand. If I would have done my therapy, I probably could do it, but I was seven years old. I didn't like doing therapy. So I didn't do my therapy, and that's, that's now I have this splayed hand. But it's a reminder to me that God's grace is sufficient for me. His strength is made perfect in my weakness. God saved my life. It was decades before I really reckoned with that. I remember the day in my 20s when the Lord said to me, I saved your life then. And I began to weep because I, I just had taken it in stride. God has probably saved your life at some point, maybe more than once. I know he has for me. I had rheumatoid arthritis so bad that I was using a cane and it took me longer to cross the street than the light would allow. When my daughter was about to be born, the doctor was saying to me, you're, you're not going to be able to hold her. And God miraculously healed me from the severity of that symptom. Even though I have a little residue of that chronic condition today, again, God's grace is sufficient for me, and it's a weakness that reminds me of my need for him. But I don't have the pain. I don't have the deformities. In fact, I had deformities with my arms that the doctor said that can never change, not even with surgery. And it did. It disappeared. I no longer have that flexion deformity. I had cysts in my leg that that disappeared. A miraculous healing from God. He does that, and he's done it for some of you. And if some of you would remember that, there'd be more healing that would come not only to you, but hallelujah through you. Because your testimony will be a way in which you worship and witness to others about the goodness of God. Even if all you can say is, God has given me his word, God has given me his spirit, God has given me his son, you have a good word abiding in you. Give thanks to God for it. He's paid your debts. He's healed your relationships. He's given you understanding. He's cast out your depression. Some of you, he's cast out your demon. Some of you still need that. Give thanks to God for what he's done so that you can be prepared for what he wants to do today and choose to be grateful for it all. Choose gratitude. Gratitude is a choice and it's a powerful choice because you and I can choose to be ungrateful. We can choose to be negative. We can choose to be driven by our emotions. We can choose to be shaped by our circumstances or we can say, I may feel a certain way, but I confess that Jesus is Lord over that. I may see a certain situation, but I confess that there are better things to be seen in the Spirit. I will speak the Word of God over my life. I will pray in the Spirit. I will pray with the understanding. I will pray and ask for the will of God. And I will be grateful no matter what comes. Even if what God does isn't what I think I want, I will be grateful to God for who He is. We rise that way, and we rise together that way, and we rise in worship that way. Worship is a way of life that is all about giving thanks to God for his goodness. In 1 John 2, this is maybe a little harder to see, so I'm going to string it together for you. But John's going to make it clear to the church then, and friends, let's let it be clear to us today that the way of the world can never guide you in the way of worship that rises up to the intention and purpose that God has for you. If you love the world and the things in the world, you know what that's about? That's about loving circumstances, situations, wealth and riches and, and power. Listen, there's nothing wrong with wealth, riches, or power. God brings it to people many times. But if that's what you love, and you love it more than God, Well, you can't serve two masters. 
So John says, don't fall in love with those things because if you love the world and its ways, its thoughts about what's right and wrong, its thoughts about how to live, its preoccupations, its technologies and shiny objects, the love of the Father is not in that and it won't be in you. For all that is of the world. It's the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of life, the very problem that led the people of Eden to reach out and grab what looked good to them from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil and fall out of the grace of the love of the Father. It's not from the Father, it's from the world, and the world is passing away. This too shall pass. But something else will be tomorrow's struggle. But always, no matter what era you and I live in, no matter how long you may live, maybe you'll live to be 98 years old. And maybe if you're one of the youngest members of our audience today, that means you'll live to the end of this century. And Lord only knows what kind of a world you might see then if Jesus tarries. He may be back by then. I don't know. He may not. I'll tell you this. The world will pass away. No matter how long you live, the world is always ever passing away with its desires. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Eternity living in you right now if you do the will of God. And what is the will of God? Worship. 1 Thessalonians 5. Not easy to say fast. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. It's very similar to what Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 4. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, give thanks. Rejoice always, he starts off by saying. Why? This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Thanksgiving is the will of God. I've heard some people who were saying, we're not going to have Thanksgiving this year because of all the lockdown. Nonsense. Don't do that. Listen, maybe, maybe you're not going to have the same kind of Thanksgiving that you've had in the past, okay? But be giving thanks to God. Lift up thanks to him. That's the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And, and what is worship? It's not just what we do with our mouths. It's not just what we do when we sing, although it includes that. But that's really just the, the fruition of what's going on in our heart, what's going on in our lives. It's what we think. It's how we live. This is spiritual worship to present your bodies, Romans 12, as a living sacrifice. And again, Paul makes the point that John made. You can't do it if you're conformed to the world because you're worshiping the world and everything that the world worships. The only way you can get out of that is to worship God and then be transformed by an inner renewal by which the Spirit will make you sensitive to, aware of what God's will and desire is for you. Look at how Romans continues in the next few verses of chapter 12. By the grace given me, the Apostle Paul says, here's what that looks like. I'm saying it to each one of you. Don't think too highly of yourself. That's, that is the way of the world. Me, me, me. Dog eat dog. I come first. Do it to them before they do it to you. Don't live that way. Instead, look honestly with sober judgment at yourself. Live according to the faith that God has distributed to each one of you because we are in this together. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and they have different functions, so in Christ, we being many, form one body, and each of us belongs to the others. So, we rise in worship, and we rise together. 
The kind of worship that we have is the kind of worship that involves godly contentment. It's great gain to those who have it. It means having that mind that, you, that, that Paul described. Whether a situation is good or situation is bad, my situation is secure in the Savior Jesus Christ. And I am here not for what I can get out of it, but for how I can give how I can give out from what God has given to me. And the more you give out, the more God pours in. So that you just are giving out more and more. And with the same measure that you are giving out, God is overflowing into you. That's real contentment. It's real godliness. And it will bring us together. Because when we live in that way, we are living in the Spirit. And the Spirit is a spirit of unity. We rise together in faith. Our worship brings us together. Again, as I come to conclusion, I mentioned John 15, where Jesus said, I'm the vine, and my Father's the vine dresser. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me, I'll abide in them, and there will be much fruit. You see, there'll be a harvest, but apart from me, you can do nothing. And my Father is glorified by this, that you bear fruit. And that fruit is fruit of love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The love that the Father had for Jesus comes to you and I when we abide in his love. And when we keep his commands. And his command is worship me, trust me, look to me, and serve one another in me. These things I have spoken to you, Jesus says to the disciples, so that your joy may be full so that my joy can be in you and fill you to overflowing. Here's my commandment. This is what God has called us to do. Love one another in the same way to the same degree that he loves us. And he loved us so much that he died for us. It's that Romans 12 idea. Love each other by giving your lives totally over to God and then using your lives to serve one another. You're my friends, Jesus said, if you do what I command. You didn't choose me, says Jesus. I chose you and I appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. That means remain in him, eternal, so that, hey, here's something to give thanks for. When you are living this way and you're living it together, you cannot live this alone. You can't be a, a branch cut off from the other branches because that means you're not connected to the vine. You can't be connected to the vine and be disconnected from the branches. If you're connected to the other branches, you're connected to the vine. And then whatever you ask the Father in that connection, in my name, he will give it to you because you will ask for what he desires to give you because you will desire what he wants to give. Jesus put it this way, the hour has come for me to be glorified unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone a single seed, but when it dies, it produces many seeds. That's what it means to, to reject the world and even your own hold on your own life and your own desire about what circumstances you want and instead embrace that life of submission and trust. That's the eternal life in Jesus. If you'll follow me to the cross, says Jesus, then... You'll be my real servant. You'll be my real friend. You'll be my brother, my sister. And my father will honor you. And here we come to the concluding verse of the first John 25, 2.25. 25. 
This is the promise. Eternal life. This is the promise. This cup of the blood. This wafer of the bread. If you have elements of the communion table there where you are, will you bring them forward? We're going to partake now. I want, I want to say that this is the connection that the Christ has always intended. If you don't have communion elements where you are, that's okay. If you have bread and juice and you say, is that okay? How do I consecrate them? You consecrate them in prayer. It's not actually you that consecrates them. It's Christ that consecrates them. But if in your heart, the bread that you have and the liquid that you have, you desire to be a participation in the body and blood of Jesus Christ and the people of faith, then the Lord by his spirit will consecrate it through your prayer. And I add my yes and amen to yours. But if you don't have any elements that are suitable, you can simply through prayer be connected in this act of communion. We choose connection. Connection to Christ and connection to one another is connection with eternity. Not just pie in the sky by and by. Not heaven in the clouds that may never come but the kingdom of the Christ alive in you today to give you strength, to give you hope, to heal your wounds, to to give your body wholeness, to deliver you out of disease and debt, depression and discouragement, out of sin. Are you stuck in a bondage, a habit? Are you in a place where you may have the words of thanks on your lips, but you don't have the spirit of thanks in your heart? Let the Lord fill you with his spirit, his life, his eternity. That's our everlasting hope. It's why we give thanks to God, because this hope does not disappoint. This bread, said Jesus, on the night he was betrayed into the worst circumstance any human being has ever faced. He said, this bread is my body and it's broken for you. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame because he he so loved the world. You, me. And he wants to make us whole through his brokenness. And he wants to bring us bodily into his body. Lord, we receive this bread today as a reminder of what you have done. You died on the cross for us, suffering pain and humiliation, suffering separation from that intimate experience of the Father. And you did it for us. Nothing we eat tomorrow will be a greater feast than the bread that we eat right now. We give you eternal thanks for what you have done for us. Take your cup. On that same night, Jesus took the cup and he gave thanks to the Father for it, as he had with the bread. And he said, this cup is the cup of new covenant made in my blood. It's for the remission of sins. It's for the washing away of every wrong. 
There is no greater joy than knowing that the love of the Lord for you covers all the multitude of your sin. He loves you. He adores you. He's reaching out to you right now, saying, I want to fill you. Be cleansed by this blood. Be strengthened by this blood. Receive a transfusion in the spirit. There is thanksgiving in this blood. There is eternity in this blood. And there's a whole family of faith that flows with this blood and grows by this blood. And you are a part of it if you receive him. I want to say if you've never given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, tonight is the night to do it. Don't wait. Don't wait. There's no time to wait because you don't know what tomorrow holds. But today, he can hold you and all of your tomorrows in his hand when you put your hand into his and take his blood into you. Simply put your trust in him. Maybe it's a recommitment. Maybe it's a renewal. Maybe as a faithful follower of Jesus, you just want to say once again, Lord Jesus, I'm trusting in you. Forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for my doubts. Forgive me for my fears. Forgive me for my weariness, my worried words. Forgive me for my doubt. Forgive me, Lord, for complaining against you, even if I didn't do it out loud. You heard it. You know it. I know it. Forgive me, Lord. I trust you. I love you. I give my life once again into your full hand. Make me a living sacrifice for you, Lord Jesus Christ, who sacrificed all for me by this precious blood of the covenant. And it is finished. It is done. You are saved. Give thanks to God. Give glory to his name. Just lift up praise to the Lord Jesus Christ where you are. This is a harvest time. This is a harvest season. This is a hard time and a hard season. But we have a greater glorious God who equips us, empowers us with purpose for the future. PCF, every brother and sister in the body of Christ. God is calling us forward into a great future full of hope, full of him with eternal rewards. Don't give up, but do rise up. Rise up together in worship of the name of Jesus Christ, of who he is, of what he's done, of who he is in your life today, of how your hope in him is secure forever and you will receive a reward today, tomorrow, and for all time. Go in his glory and be blessed in your thanksgiving and every day to come. In Jesus' name, amen.